just the flight itself, you know, coming in and landing at San Juan airport. And as a child, you know, that's something you remember. You remember the palm trees and you remember the beautiful water and, and you're just looking out the window. And to see it this time, you know, there weren't the beautiful green palm trees. A lot of it was dried out. The palm trees were just torn apart. Infrastructure damage made the news for months afterwards. All of the telephone poles and electrical poles were snapped in half just as lo- as far as the eye could see. There wasn't any cell service. You'd, you'd be driving along a highway and the highest point in the highway, all the cars would be stopped because everybody was trying to grab a little bit of cell signal. You're listening to an American Red Cross in Greater New York podcast. On September 20th, 2017, Puerto Rico was hit by one of our country's most destructive natural disasters ever, Hurricane Maria. The impact of this Category 4 storm was far-reaching and devastating. Though estimates vary, some studies have loss of life resulting from Maria between 2,600 and 3,200 people. Approximately 70,000 homes were destroyed, while hundreds of thousands more were damaged. 80% of Puerto Rico's agriculture was wiped out, while the island's entire electrical grid was destroyed, resulting in the largest power outage in American history. Total damage to the island was estimated at $100 billion. But even these dire statistics failed to capture the true human toll of a storm that forever changed this island of more than 3 million people, many of whom are still struggling to cope with the aftermath more than four years later. Hello, everyone. This is Michael de Volpierre, communications officer with the American Red Cross in Greater New York. Welcome back to the third season of our podcast, where we provide a behind-the-scenes look at some of the emergencies that have shaped our city and our country over these past 20 years. In this episode, we talk with a few Red Cross team members from New York and Puerto Rico who were on the front lines of Hurricane Maria relief, as well as two reporters who covered the storm's impact and aftermath, all of whom have a personal connection to the island. They recall the devastation and overwhelming challenges they witnessed, along with the spirit and resiliency of the Puerto Rican people. With more than 700,000 Puerto Ricans living in New York City, making up nearly 9% of the city's population, this disaster was very personal to us at the American Red Cross in Greater New York, which is why we wanted to tell this story. First, we hear from Gabby Azevedo, an NBC New York and Telemundo 47 correspondent who was on a special assignment reporting from a town about 52 miles to the west of San Juan when Hurricane Maria made landfall. He remembers what it was like to ride out the powerful hurricane with his news crew. The last time that my crew went live from the town of Morovis uh, was on Telemundo around 3 a.m. inside a shelter in the mountains of Puerto Rico. Around 4 to 5 a.m., everything disconnected. There was no cellular phone signal. Landlines started to fail. Even radio connection was started to become complicated. We lost contact with the station and the emergency overwhelmed Uh, the infrastructure in Puerto Rico, which collapsed as a whole. Winds reached up to 200 miles per hour, as reported, uh, where people saw uh, several tornado occurrences, where the ground was shaking, and inevitably the landscape of what is the mountains of Puerto Rico changed as a whole. You don't realize how much time has passed as you would do on a normal day because you're just connected to the intensity of the way nature is reacting. 
It, it's an out-of-body experience. Your heart rate goes up automatically. No matter your age, no matter your condition, you're feeling like as if you are in, in a ride that you have no control of. American Red Cross and Puerto Rico disaster mental health volunteer Nelson Lopez, a veteran of wars in Iraq and Kosovo, was at home with his pregnant wife during landfall. It hit up to 150 miles per hour in my particular area, and, and it took part of the roof off. So we were seeing, you know, like we try to protect part of the ceiling so it won't fly away. But eventually we're like, hey, just, just let it fly, you know, just. We take care of that, uh, anything, you know, during the time when we recovered. It was um, uh, a lot of adrenaline going on, busy, busy for hours and hours. Just try to pour, um, to try to maintain the water, not uh, flooding the whole house. Uh, for a minute, it gave me a little bit of a uh, flashback, like I was back in, in, in Kosovo and Iraq seeing this type of destruction because you feel, wow, so many destruction is a, a matter of, of ours, how can it be? Everyone in Puerto Rico had a different element or level of experience as to the hurricane. Some people had the experience of wind speed being major destructive, as I said, in the mountains, but people in the coast had the storm surge and people close to the rivers had uh, the element of flooding because the rivers changed its courses. So I guess that everybody went through their experiences of survival, not only on D-Day, on day zero, but especially on the days after the storm has passed, because that is what hurricanes do. They impact you for hours, they destroy life and property, and they leave a remnant that lasts for generations. The first things that I saw was destruction beyond precedence, not only nature and vegetation, but, but infrastructure in the mountain towns, uh, uh, people's homes completely ravished without rooftops, without uh, any structure that was only either cement or some type of other strong construction, everything else was gone. But the first thing you see is how people are just in shock. Everybody is pale in their skin that they went through a, a ride, a roller coaster ride beyond their control and that they just want to sit down and take a breath. But that's when things get more difficult because it's time to start recovering what you lost and to accept that everything that you worked for your whole life was gone in a matter of hours. As news of the devastation in Puerto Rico made its way around the world, those with friends and family members on the island, particularly here in New York, were anxious for reliable information. For many, watching the disaster unfold from afar sparked a desire to help. Here's Bloomberg business reporter Lisa Mateo, herself Puerto Rican, who was with New York's PIX11 at the time. New Yorkers and Puerto Ricans have had this connection for the longest time. It was always memories growing up as a kid, going to the island, you know, visiting my grandparents. My husband's from Puerto Rico, and it's just a big part of our lives and our culture and our livelihood. And that's why going there meant so much more to me. Um, it's something that I really pushed for when I was at Channel 11. And the whole purpose behind it was to go and get questions answered, you know, speak to officials, but more so speak to the people, um, talk about what they were going through. To support the American Red Cross in Puerto Rico, 
hundreds of Red Cross volunteers and employees from across the country and around the world, including dozens from here in Greater New York, brought their compassion and skills to the island to help in recovery efforts. In addition to supplying things like food, clean water, relief supplies, and generators, Red Crossers provided critical emotional support to those who had lived through the harrowing storm and were faced with its long and difficult aftermath. Stephen Cologne, who was an American Red Cross volunteer at the time, deployed to Puerto Rico for several weeks. It was the first national disaster where uh, the Red Cross experienced the, uh, the issue that we needed to have a, a higher bandwidth of Spanish volunteers for translation. And so that was my, my first reason to go. A second reason is I'm actually half Puerto Rican, half Ecuadorian. So, um, you know, it, it hits close to home. And to be able to have the opportunity to go and support through my job was the, it was the best satisfaction I could ever have. Longtime Red Cross Public Affairs volunteer Winnie Romerel also traveled to Puerto Rico to help. Winnie is from upstate New York, speaks fluent Spanish, and has deployed to disasters all over the world with the Red Cross. It's the first time that I ever went on a Red Cross deployment that I had so many requests to check on people. So I, I literally, I have a lot of Puerto Rican friends, and so many people sent me messages saying, hey, we still haven't heard from so-and-so's grandma. Can you find out? When you're down there, if you happen to go to this town, we're looking for so-and-such a person. I had dozens of requests like that. And it made the entire deployment very, very personal. Faced with overwhelming destruction and devastation, Puerto Ricans found strength in community. Gabby and Stephen witnessed firsthand the bonds forged between neighbors after Hurricane Maria. You start to also see unity between those that are next to each other because that is all you have. You have no cell phones, you have no connection to the outside world. So you're just there in the moment with the people around you and you have to become, I don't know if this is the right word, but you have to become tribal in survival as a collective group to make it through. And people start gathering everything they have and throwing things on a pot to make soup for the whole street. So I would have to say that even in the worst moment, we had warm plates because of people who just came and offered us something in the middle of the street hours after the worst disaster in the history of Puerto Rico. We're known as, as very happy people on the island. Um, so in, even in disasters, there's always going to be uh, an individual or families that are trying to support each other and trying to create a positive atmosphere. So I knew that once I was getting to that island, that it would be a community effort and it wouldn't just be a, an impossible task to happen. That's exactly how it ended up being. A majority of the sites that we ended up doing bulk distribution around the island, you would always have uh, families that were in that neighborhood get involved with distributing things off the line, um, helping each other out. So that was an amazing thing to see firsthand on the ground. For Puerto Ricans like Nelson Lopez, some of the greatest personal challenges arose in the days and months after the storm, when first responders could not get through and clean water, electricity, and gas were in short supply. I was one of the lucky um, family um, in Puerto Rico because uh, we were able to receive complete electricity and water service during um, the first 30 days. Unfortunately, not, uh, even though my parents and my sister lived just across a couple of streets, from where I live, it took them approximately 10 months or to a year to receive electricity. And that's only two, two streets down the road. It took them over a year and a half to receive electricity down in Ponce, my mother-in-law. And up to day four years, there are still areas that do not receive water services or electricity. 
Here's Gabby again from NBC New York and Telemundo 47. There were families who had to bury their dead inside cars that were stuck in the mud and had to wait for weeks for any type of forensic or government help or military help to get the bodies out. They buried people in backyards in rural towns. There were people who had major illnesses such as need of dialysis or cancer or other uh, terminal illnesses who simply were left to die in front of their family members next to them without any electricity, with scarce water and food. During that time, I lost my mom. My mother passed away because of Maria. She used to work um, collecting cans and anything to try to recycle. And then she got a, an infection. So they left her in the hospital for a period of two months. They were unable to diagnose um, why with infection. Due to the lack of uh, medical personnel and lack of proper hygiene, we didn't have no water in, in Puerto Rico. Those hospitals they didn't have a proper um, maintenance. They tried to do their best, but unfortunately, the hygiene at those um, hospitals um, was not up to the standard that it should be. And I lost my mother towards that. We will have to move on. And as a son, uh, I'm grateful that I value and I share every single moment that I live with my mother. Lisa Mateo witnessed firsthand how residents were struggling to cope amid the scarcity of life-sustaining necessities like shelter and water. And I remember seeing a man and he was, you know, he built this little shack, but it was the foundation of what used to be his home. He was just sitting there and, and I walked over to him. I started talking to him and I asked him, you know, to tell me his story. And he said, you know, the hurricane took his home. Um, his family had gone back to Florida, um, but he stayed there, you know? And, and I asked him, I said, you know, this is all you have. Why are you here? And he just said to me, he said, este es mi casa. Es el único que tengo. Tengo que echar pa'lante. And he was just basically telling me that this is this is his house, no matter what it is. It's a foundation. This is his house. It's the only one he has, and he needs to move forward. He was willing to stay there and rebuild from hand something that was his. So it was just a beautiful story of, of how resilient, but, but how powerful, you know, the, the people are. It's just that, the, the main necessities, you know, that, that you don't even think about, bottled water. I mean, we take it for granted here, but that's what they were going with because they couldn't drink, you know, what was coming out of their faucet or they couldn't, you know, drink. Some were, were reaching to the river and, and you that's just not healthy and not sanitary. Because we ran out of water, so we used to go to the river and everybody washing their clothes, they are um, bathing and they, they're taking the showers which also created a, a bigger hysteria at the end because then people started getting a lot of infections. It became uh, unsanitary. At the end of the day, you could not even use the rivers no more. A lot of it were um, businesses too, seeing them struggle. You know, We went into old San Juan and seeing so many of them 
boarded up, but yet some were starting to come back at that point. You know, I had seen some of the first cruise ships come back into the port, um, which was nice because tourism is, is a big part of the island. Um, and talking about how that was starting to come back. But, but it was a journey, you know, it was basically that power of the water and the main food necessities that, um, that we take for granted that, that they did not have at the time. Working alongside partners, the American Red Cross did everything it could to bring help and hope to those suffering. The Red Cross certainly, and I have become very close to your organization because I have seen with my eyes and I have felt the immediate impact that you guys and your staff has on the ground. In some cases, staff members, in other cases, volunteers, but in the end, it's help that reassures people once they see your logo and your presence on the ground, that at least they have someone there in the moments of, of difficulty. Your organization is one, I would say Habitat for Humanity is another one, uh, especially in the northeastern side of Puerto Rico. In many instances, Red Crossers like Stephen and Winnie worked with community members to find creative ways to overcome obstacles. They also observed great generosity and selflessness all around them. So I deployed out as a bulk distribution of emergency supplies, and it's the basic need of providing food, um, anything emergency related, so flashlights, things like that. Uh, what we would do is we would get a briefing at a certain location of the island, and then we could be directed to anywhere, maybe three hours west, or if we were on the west side, three hours east, and uh, connect with emergency management partners and basically lead a truck that was filled with at least $11,000 worth of emergency supplies and spend basically half the day or the full day there distributing it to a community that could be anywhere from 300 to 600 people. Challenges that we've had were roadblocks, um, trees down and things like that. And uh, I remember one specific experience that I had that I always share was um, our truck driver obviously was concerned of moving further when we could actually see the people maybe about 100, 200 yards in front of us. At that point, it's very difficult to say we have to shut the operation down and head back. So that particular scenario where we had trees in front and, and, and maybe some uh, vines coming down, we had some help from the community there that uh, we had three or four people that came out of their house after watching us there stuck for about 45 minutes in cars behind us and helped us. Uh, they ended up getting on top of the of the truck with some guidance with the truck driver. And, you know, they said, we need it. We need this food. We've been here for, for a long time without anybody coming through. And they actually helped with machetes, uh, chopping down some of the, the vines that were in the way. You know, it was a, an unusual experience for us, obviously, but it was a community effort. And it was something where it was a dire need. The American Red Cross expression is get to yes somehow. Well, the community helped us get to yes in that situation. This one town we got up to and we had heard that they needed some baby formula as well as diapers and many other items. So we arrived and we were distributing items and they said, no, actually, we've got enough baby formula. The military came in with a helicopter. They dropped a lot of baby formula. In fact, it's too much. You guys are the Red Cross. Maybe you could take the extra baby formula we have and give it to somebody else. And just the thought that people in the situation of scarcity would evaluate their needs as a town and say, okay, we've got too much of this, but we're sure somebody else doesn't have enough. So let's give this away and push it on towards the next community that needs it. I mean, that that really struck a chord with me. And it was something that we saw repeated again and again and again, that when people had enough of something, they said, okay, we're good. And that was 
really beautiful and remarkable. And I think it's just something that's kind of classic about the Puerto Rican spirit. Within the community, since day one, everybody that was elderly has children or were facing any crisis and they knew that I was a social worker. And most of the people within community know my field work. Um, I provided mental health counseling during that time for any any particular need, which normally is bent, you know, they will bend the emotion. I will help them by the day because it's normal. And what they're facing, and it's not normal because it's something new that we all facing as a community, but to find ways to be able to learn how to cope and to be able to, within this darkness of moment that they might feel, to see the light. For those two weeks out of the out of three weeks, we were staying in a church basement with about at least 100 volunteers and staff. And, you know, what it looked like was uh, cots next to each other and, you know, people who are going out maybe 17 hours of the day sweating and then coming back. And then, you know, we have two minutes to take a shower because we have a, a water shortage in the dark. So that was our, our routine after we we serviced anywhere on the island. We would come back and patiently wait in line to take a two minute shower. Um, and then get ready for bed and, and you know, just be with everybody here, based stories, every specific function that they were serving. Um, and then the second that maybe you had Wi-Fi uh, when that was allowed on that area of the island, um, everybody was reporting out to the families. And everybody there was still smiling, still trying to support each other, uh, trying to get the job done, trying to recruit people from across the U.S. to come in. Being that each one of them were impacted in some way or another, but was still there every day, uh, says a lot. Here's Gabby again, this time sharing a touching story he reported on during the holidays, three months after landfall. We did a special story between 23 and 26 of, uh, December up in the town of Corozal and Naranjito and how people were peregrinating, basically pilgrimaging up to the mountains to pay homage to people who survived the storm and to the basic tradition that during Christmas season, everyone has to go once into the mountains of Puerto Rico to feel the air, to give thanks, and to celebrate with the rural towns people. I think that is something that happened in a beautiful way because it reconnected us to the basic things of what Puerto Rico is. And it started to lead us into a positive energy that the year 2018 had to be the important recovery moment for everyone. But I would say that those days across the island, Puerto Ricans felt that we were going to be okay as long as we stuck together. Now, if we did or not, that is up to history to judge eventually. What lessons should we learn from Maria? What lasting impacts did it have on those who answered the call to help? I think to this day, I can't say that I think Puerto Rico is okay, not only from what happened with Hurricane Maria, but with other issues, including the earthquakes and other issues, politically and socially that are going on the island. Somebody asked me a similar question as you just did uh, years ago. And I said, well, it's gonna take a generation. I have seen so many images of what happened across New York, New Jersey and the Northeast with Ida. People just were caught flat-footed and surprised. So I think that's my first uh, word of advice of what we learned. Not under, do not underestimate nature and don't fall into a false sense of security. Did this establish and develop a bond with your neighbors, with the people around you in your community? Because in the end, when everything collapses, that is who you're going to turn to. The reason I continue to volunteer at the Red Cross is because there's no other organization 
globally that you work alongside the people from that place, whether I go to the Philippines or to Haiti or to Sierra Leone, wherever I am, I'm working shoulder to shoulder with people from that place. And that means a lot to me. I think the locals have the knowledge to solve their problems, but they don't always have all the resources. And so I really like being a part of an organization that doesn't pretend to impose the answer on a solution, but says, hey, let's talk to the local people because they're the experts and we're going to support them. We're going to start with their knowledge and we're going to build on that and we're going to try and answer the problem to this disaster, starting with the people, with the local people. So my father, um, one, he was obviously very proud that I was able to contribute uh, to Puerto Rico by through my job and, and helping out with disaster relief. But, you know, hearing the stories that he would tell me growing up and areas of Puerto Rico that I haven't visited yet, and then going there and, and meeting the communities and helping out, it's exactly how he would paint the picture in my head when I was a child. I've covered things from 9-11 to Hurricane Sandy to, um, to Hurricane Maria. And this was um, one of the most personal. This is more of a, a cultural um, connection um, to my childhood. And that's what made it even more beautiful. Um, just being able to go back and, and also help out at the same time. You know, I always wanted to do something and um, being able to figure out what that was, um, that's what it was. It was just being able to tell those stories and to give that reassurance to the people, especially the people of New York, that that everything is going to be okay. And here are their stories and here's what they're saying and see how they're helping one another and see how they're coming back stronger than ever. The most inspiring moment of a hurricane is when us as uh, Puerto Ricans, we came as one. And there are people living in the community for 20, 30 years, and nobody even knew who their neighbor was. They didn't know. They just know Fulanito de Tal, you know, him, you know, they, oh, yeah, he works, you know, but nobody knew. So that was impactful to get to know that everybody within the community started connect with each other. Everybody started to know who, who, who was in need. And after a hurricane, we continued to have that bond. For the residents of Puerto Rico, as well as the volunteers who deployed to help and the correspondents who told their stories, Maria will likely be remembered for fostering a sense of community, with neighbors working together for days, months, and years to help one another recover from one of the worst disasters in the island's history. Every small step, from a man rebuilding his house by hand to cruise ships returning to the port of San Juan, brings hope that Puerto Rico and its people will use what they learned from Maria to become even more resilient than before. Huge thank you to Nelson, Gabby, Lisa, Winnie, and Stephen for sharing with us. I also want to offer my deepest thoughts to the people of Puerto Rico who continue on their path to recovery. This episode was produced by me, Michael DeVolpeer, and edited by Chi Kong Lu and Olivia Kozlevkar. I also want to thank Barbara Gaines for her support. If you liked what you've heard, we encourage you to share, like, and comment on your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you all for listening. Let's continue to look out for one another.